0: When talking about grad school, we often talk about the challenges of academic life, about mental health and about physical health. But what about financial health? Academic accomplishments are paramount at this juncture in your life. But in the end, you want to be set up not only as a specialist in your domain, but you also want to come out of the process with a clean financial bill of health and ready to find your ideal place on the job market. In this week's episode, we'll be talking with Emily Roberts who will share with us how she became financially savvy during her PhD and how the financial know-how she acquired and shared with her community as a side hustle ended up setting the foundations of her current career. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking with Emily Roberts. What was a hobby for Emily during grad school became her business. She earned a PhD in Biomedical Engineering from Duke University in 2014, and shortly after launched Personal Finance for PhDs. Her business is focused on helping graduate students, postdocs, and PhDs in their first or so real jobs make the most of their money. Emily provides financial education for universities and associations, coaches individuals, and creates digital products for individuals, on top of creating the free content available in her website, podcast episodes, articles, and videos. Welcome to the podcast, Emily.
1: Thank you so much for having me, David. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today.
0: <laughs> me too. So, so um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and about how you help grad students take the reins of their financial health, so to say.
1: Yes, of course. I'm sure we'll dive into many of these aspects throughout the course of our conversation. But just as a brief um, overview, so in terms of my financial life... um I grew up in middle class family and went to college. You know, my parents largely supported me during that time. And then when I got out of college, I did a post back year um, at the NIH when I was kind of exploring what I knew I wanted to apply for a PhD, but I didn't quite know what subspecialty within biomedical engineering I wanted to go for. So that year as a post back really helped me kind of hone my research interests and decide, you know, what I wanted to pursue. At the same time, I was receiving, you know, a full time paycheck, sort of for the first time. It was a stipend. And I really had no idea what to do with it financially. And so that was when I started sort of learning about personal finance. Then I started my PhD um, in biomedical engineering at Duke, as you said. I ultimately spent six years in that program um, and (laughs) finished successfully, thankfully. Um, And also during that time, I was sort of learning more and more about personal finance, honing my skills in that area. And I started blogging about halfway through my PhD about personal finance. Um, and I was just I was just writing a lot of personal stuff, you know, what I was doing with my own money and so forth. And I kind of realized based on the traffic that was coming to my blog, based on the comments, based on the emails, that when I was writing about the subject of personal finance for graduate students or personal finance for, you know, people living on stipends that was really of high interest, you know? And so, you know, went along, finished my PhD. Um, it was important to me to, you know, finish that and, and get the degree. But um, ultimately, I was not as inspired by the other work options I saw that, you know, many other people were taking uh, in terms of alternative, quote unquote, careers. And... Um, so I ultimately decided to start you know this business pursuing helping my peer group you know grad students and PhDs with personal finance instead of going down one of these more uh, well- trodden paths uh, after the PhD So I've been working you know, in in my business for about well almost five years now since i defended and it's been an amazing experience as you said in your intro i largely i do a lot of speaking engagements for universities so my connection to academia is really important to me in that respect Um, my access to that community through the universities and i also work with individuals as well through my website
0: wow that's that's very interesting so you started on your own blogging about about uh, personal finance. What drove you to to start to start blogging? Did you like writing before?
1: I did like writing. I've always been a big reader and writer um, throughout my life, and. Honestly, I'm really glad you asked this question because I found that writing was not a skill that I was heavily utilizing during graduate school, which is almost kind of funny, right? I mean, it was in I was in engineering. So I was doing a lot of experiments. And of course, there is a component to writing. You know, you'll certainly do that with your classes and and ultimately, you know, reports and papers that you produce, but writing was not as much of, you know, it was not figuring as heavily into what I was doing professionally as I would have liked. So part of the inspiration for the blog absolutely was just. Hey, I want to do a different type of writing and I want to do a little bit more writing, something less formal you know, than scientific writing. Um, and I actually was considering um, you know, post-PhD careers in science writing or science editing and things in those areas. So yes, writing has always been a, a strong uh, skill set and an enjoyable skill set for me. I find actually now that I do much less writing than I used to because I've started podcasting and I love podcasting. So uh, the writing has been a little bit supplanted, although certainly I do that uh, to a great degree still.
0: Mm-hmm. But definitely, that's what what uh, started the whole the whole uh, personal finance for PhDs well, thing.
1: I would say that um, that that was the reason why I chose blogging as my medium of content creation because. Back when I started my first blog, which is not personal finance for PhDs, but a, a predecessor evolving personal finance, back when I started that in 2011, um, the the personal finance blogosphere was a very strong and active community, and I really wanted to be part of it. I considered starting a podcast at that time because I loved listening to podcasts. I listened to them all the time when I was, you know, at the hood or at the bench doing work. Um, it was a, a wonderful here. medium, <laughs> yeah. But you know, <laughs> podcasting was not it's not the the popular thing that it is today right it was just in its you know more nascent stages and so to me a lot of the I don't know, I guess technical hurdles of starting a podcast um, were higher at that point than they have become in recent years. So, you know, I, I thought about podcasting, I thought about, you know, creating videos, but blogging seemed to be, you know, writing seemed to be the most accessible, easy thing to do to get my content out there. And I think it was, you know, the right choice for that time. Um, yeah, so so it was really about being able to participate in the personal finance community. And I found that incredibly transformative for my own finances, right? Like because I was writing consistently about my finances, you know, budget reports and things like that. Um, and I was also receiving feedback from the community. It really helped elevate my own practice of personal finance multiple levels. And I ultimately became very financially successful um, for, let's say for a graduate student. And then in the years since then, based on you know the skills and practices that I honed during that time, so what was really important for me um, ultimately when I saw, as I said, eventually that other PhDs were interested in this content, and I seemed to be not literally the only voice, but one of the more prominent voices speaking about personal finance to that community, I just realized that this had you know become my passion, and I wanted to turn around and more uh, directly or actively help people with their finances rather than just talking about my own and you know. Whoever wants to read it can read it and take what they will from. It. And I, I decided to turn that around into more of a, an education business.
0: Very cool. And plus, you were a colleague, right? So, you know, you knew their problems, you knew their issues, uh, you knew their their day-to-day type of uh, schedule and life. No, that really, really cool that you found that, that, uh, that community and that then you shared it to your colleagues
1: this point is actually really, really important I think for my positioning in my business because um, I don't I haven't pursued any licenses for being you know financial advisor or anything or financial anything nothing professional. Um, yet people still want to work with me and they still want to hire me as a speaker. To them it's not important that I have a CFP or whatever. What's important is that I come from this community of PhDs and that I relate to their experiences and they can relate to me. That's really sort of my unique positioning.
0: So now going back to to grad school and to to the the moment where you were finishing and that you felt, you know, that you were going to leave academia and you're going to, to do something else. Can you tell us a little bit about what went through your head? How how you, you know, how you found your calling and how you decided in a way or when did you discover that you were not going to follow up to a postdoc, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So I I have to go back to my post back days actually. So when I again I knew that I wanted to, you know, do research and pursue a PhD, didn't know exactly what I wanted um, professionally or in terms of my exact research area. But when I was a postdoc at the NIH, I was looking around at the other, you know, people in that space, at my advisor, at some of you know my colleagues and coworkers. And I was thinking to myself, a postdoc seems like the best job. Like I would love to be a postdoc because you know you're so immersed in research. Um, you have the skills. You know you're you're really able to be productive, and you don't have the responsibilities of you know the PI level. Um, of course, postdocs will apply, apply for grants and so forth, but there, there's much less pressure on them um, to actually in that stage, right? They want to move to the next stage, but within that stage, there's less pressure um, to provide and everything, and you can really just work. And I saw that. That was my impression anyway. And and I I saw that and I was like oh I would love to just just do research forever I don't want to become a PI I mean I did want to become a PI I guess but I knew I didn't want to do it in an academic setting um so when I started graduate school you know that was kind of the plan like do research maybe become a PI work in a non-academic setting like the NIH I thought that was an amazing you know place to be so that was my plan going into graduate school so it was never my plan to stay in academia I'll say that is you know that's different from many other graduate students although not that different in engineering I found that a lot of my peers also did not want to pursue academic degrees even from the start academic positions that is even from the start of graduate school so I always knew I was kind of on this non-academic track But a couple years into graduate school when, you know, the going got tough, Mm -hmm. um, when the results weren't coming the way that I thought they would and things were frustrating, I went through kind of a low period. I think it's really typical. I went through a low period kind of in the middle of my PhD and I was evaluating, do I really need to finish? Like, I don't, I'm sick of research. I don't want to do this forever. Um, is it worth it to finish the PhD? And I kind of went through a period of reevaluation and, and career exploration and kind of decided, okay, I, I'm looking at some different job options and I think it is a good idea to finish the PhD. So I I did, and it's a long slog and it was difficult. Um but for the jobs that I was interested in, the career paths I was interested in, the PhD would be really valuable. So I was really, as I said earlier, interested in science writing and science editing. I was very interested in science policy, very curious about what that you know, career path would be. And in fact, I... I ultimately did a short fellowship in science policy after I finished my PhD, um, as part of this exploration. But, um, yeah, so it's kind of a gradual, like falling out of love with research, I would say. Um, but as I was saying earlier, at the same time in parallel, falling more and more in love with personal finance. Um, And it wasn't until I actually defended and was sort of freed from the day-to-day rigors of research um, that I had a little bit more time to think about, okay, what do I actually want to do? (laughs) Uh, What kind of job do I want to have?
0: Excellent. So it looks like because your objective, uh, the the objective that you had included getting a PhD to get to the position you wanted, so that was one of the motivations you had to finish.
1: Yes, I would say my motivated to finish my motivation to finish was exclusively career driven <laughs> by the end, right? Um, it wasn't and also, you know, I was in a comfortable like place. Like Duke is um, in my experience, a wonderful place to be for um, you know, your PhD and for just living in Durham, it's not, it's a it's a medium cost of living city. So it wasn't super, super straining to live on a stipend. Like I wasn't raring to get out for those kinds of other reasons. We had my husband and I had great community um, in Durham, and so everything was very nice and comfortable. Except that I just wanted to be done with research.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Good. And you talked about uh, this moment where you you kind of did this inner exploration, and you were kind of looking at at what the possibilities were that interested you uh, afterwards. Uh, can you share a little bit of how you know how you did this exploration for people who are in kind of in the same situation now and they are looking for ways to find their calling?
1: Well, I very, very heavily use the professional development resources at Duke. And I think, again, this is um, one of the reasons that Duke is a wonderful place to do a PhD. um, Because, I mean, especially at that time, we're talking about over five years ago now. um, I think... Based on the interactions I've had with people since, it seems to me that Duke did a lot more support for its PhD students in terms of career exploration and professional development than other places did. Like when I got to that fellowship that I mentioned, um, and I was in a cohort of about 25 people in graduate school or recently finished with graduate school from all over the country, all different universities, and talking with them about these sorts of professional development um, uh, pursuits, I realized, wow, I had a lot more support at Duke than A lot of other people do, so that's a a real credit there. But I very heavily was using the career center and and so forth. So I was doing things like taking um, self assessments and doing exercises to figure out, you know, that were guided by the by the professionals in that area to figure out more about myself. There was a lot of introspection um, and comparing to like possible different career paths. And even within um, the Pratt School of Engineering, which is what I was part of, they uh, were piloting a program called PhD Plus in my last couple years of graduate school there which um, was basically about sharing with people more possibilities within you know the engineering specific career paths outside of academia um, and what kinds of skills you should be developing during graduate school to set yourself up to you know enter one of those career paths so I was very very heavily using resources available to me at my university so I as in, in terms of advice that's you know, that's my main piece of advice is whatever is being offered to you, use it to the maximum. Um, and it may not be that well advertised. And you know what? It may not be advertised for PhD students. I was lucky that they did have a strong concentration of resources specifically for PhD students, but career centers serve all students, you know, whatever the stage. And so you can use some of those resources maybe that are sort of being billed for undergrads, they're still going to be useful for you, right? So if you don't have that PhD specific stuff, there's still other resources available.
0: Definitely. I couldn't agree more with that advice. Uh, Using the resources that are offered by university, uh, if you don't, you're just missing an opportunity for sure. And uh, for example, I'm in Montreal, Canada, and uh, at McGill University here, uh, the same. They have a great center uh, uh, that offers, they, they even had a PhD support group where uh, different PhD students would meet and discuss w- whatever difficulties they were having, etc. So, for sure, go to your to your university, find if there's there are services. Be, be it like you said for undergraduates or even for for graduate students, and use them. You know, it could be like you, the the type of exercises you said, but also a CV tailoring or a, a fake interview type things. So, definitely. Uh, that's very good advice, and it's not the first time that uh, that I mention it. And whenever someone asks, it it's usually it's the first thing I say. Does your university offer services of that kind? Then go and and use them as much as you can, for sure.
1: Totally, totally agree. I mean, you're paying all those student fees or whatever; they're being paid on your behalf, so you should use all the resources you can. Um, I'll add another note that um, so I, since exiting graduate school, have um, had a lot of interaction with. Uh, the brand Beyond the Professoriate, which is run by Jen Polk and Maren Wood. And I would definitely, you know, encourage people if they don't feel like they have sufficient PhD specific resources at their universities to seek out some of these outside um, groups or offerings. And Beyond the Professoriate is one of those. So they have a whole community around people who are doing exactly what we're talking about. They're they're transitioning out of their PhDs, or maybe they're already out and they're just looking for a little bit of a career, you know, tweak. And they have tons of, you know, information, informational interviews. So you can help with that career exploration and even, you know, groups you can be part of so you can keep each other, you know, <laughs> accountable to meeting your goals in terms of, you know, whatever it is, applying for new things or doing informational interviews, whatever stage you're at. So if the resources do not exist at your university, there are other kinds of communities that you can join that are specific to PhDs.
0: Excellent. I, I'll definitely share their uh, their URL in the show notes. Uh, awesome. So, and you know uh, i've been talking with you now for uh, for a bunch of minutes and i feel that you're you're a very driven person but you know often during grad school and especially in the, the the final stages of even writing or preparing to write it can get difficult and um i wonder whether you can share with with our listeners uh like a main attitude or principle that accompanied and guided you from the moment when you saw that you were not going to follow up into academia, and that uh, that actually you had another calling that was growing inside you, which was uh, this personal finance—not uh, consulting, but this personal finance project—what attitude has accompanied you and helped you even up to today uh, to to reach your goals and to you know to to finish your projects and to to do more and more and better and better.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good one for me to reflect on um, what, what did sustain me during that time. Um, I think I was always focused on finding work that was fulfilling to me um I was not very concerned with what other people thought about me or my career path um of course i wanted my advisor to continue to support me and he has you know been financially of course during graduate school and also emotionally um sort of supportive of of the career path that I was exploring he did not i did not have to hide from him that i was you know not on an academic track he knew that from you know the get-go in our relationship um so i did not i didn't Care Well, I did care to a degree, but I think my overall pursuit was just, I'm going to find something that I really love to do. I'm going to use my skill set. I'm going to have a good time at work. Um, And I didn't want, I was at the time at the end of graduate school, putting up with a lot of work that I didn't really love or want to be doing, which is research. I mean, I should say, I, I said I had a long, you know, low middle of graduate school. Things picked up at the end and the and the results started coming and I got more skillful and things were looking more positive towards the end of the PhD. It didn't change my mind about leaving research, but it made the end of it a little bit more bearable. Um, but I, I I knew that I wanted to find something that I really loved and it didn't matter as much to me that it wasn't a classic thing to do with a PhD, whether that's going to be science writing or science policy, the things that I was thinking about a lot of that time, or what I've actually done, you know, self-employment and a complete pivot um, away from my specific, you know, discipline within my PhD. So, yep, just wanted to find something that I really enjoyed and didn't want to put up any longer with work that wasn't fun. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is, uh, one of the things I heard that I think is important is, uh people around you may criticize or question uh your choices. Um but what I'm taking from what you're saying is you have to listen to yourself and 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 follow what you want to do because in the end you're designing your life, right? You're you're not you're not gonna live someone else's optimal or perfect life. It's yours. Uh, absolutely yeah
1: and i had the freedom for that kind of self actualization like not necessarily everyone does you know my husband who is also a phd is very supportive of my like crazy ideas of doing other things um and he has pursued a much more like traditional post phd career path so not not academic but still you know research based and so he like if I were in a marriage or relationship with someone who wasn't supportive of me going off and doing my own thing, that would be, you know, obviously a, a constraining uh, point and something that would be very carefully taken into consideration. Cause obviously I value my spouse's opinion very highly. Um, but in the situation that I was in, I did have the freedom to pivot and do these other things. And I was not so concerned with, uh, doing something different from my peers or something that looked, uh, did I really need a PhD to like do personal finance education? Well, I think that I did to do it the way that I do it. Um, but maybe other people don't have to have it, but I did and I think it serves me very well. And so I still consider my you know, career path to be a, a PhD appropriate career path, um, even if others might not.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Because I've talked with people who've had family kind of being against or disappointed, let's say, and that can be hard. But uh, But in the end... I believe that making your own choices and and choosing a a path, uh, especially a path that ends up being productive, but it's the one that you chose, I think that's key to leading a happy professional life afterwards.
1: Yeah. And actually, you're making me think even further back um, to my childhood, which my parents have always been super supportive of whatever i want to do and did not put a lot of their own expectations on me so for example you know my my parents don't have phds like i was the first person in my family to attain that level of of education and so they were just impressed that i was doing that you know they didn't care if i didn't become a, pro- a professor after that or, or what have you so i think that this attitude that you're you're hearing is something that's been cultivated in me for my entire life Um, and the only thing I can say to other people who maybe, um, haven't had that same kind of attitude, you know, around them is just that it is possible for you to do what you would like to do and what's going to make you super happy. Um, even if it does disappoint people around you, as you just said, you're not, um, really beholden to other people's expectations aside from maybe, you know, supporting your own family, your own responsibilities. Um, aside from that, you know, it doesn't, it's your life, right? It's your life. Do what you want with it. And
0: uh, again, for people who might be in, the, in this difficult time and who might be considering dropping out, uh, would you have one or two words uh, to tell them about the value of finishing and of, of completing this, this uh, huge thing that is a PhD?
1: Well, <laughs> first I'll say you can consider dropping out. Go ahead. I mean, go ahead and consider it, right? I mean, don't drop out because you've had a bad month or even a bad year, but um, there's plenty to do outside of, you know, a PhD. And if that's what you want to do and you know you don't want to finish graduate school, don't waste time on it. Go do something else. That's totally fine. I'm supportive of that. But um, if you do decide that you, um, that you want to finish, that finishing is important to you. It was really kind of exciting to me to have you know the PhD after my name, to have the doctor in front of my name. Um, that was exciting. The value of the PhD is far beyond just your discipline-specific knowledge and skills that you've developed, right? There are tons of translatable skills that you cultivate during the PhD that can be applied in many other areas. And the PhD degree itself may open up doors for you that having a master's or or a bachelor's wouldn't, Um, but you can still be developing these other skill areas while you are finishing the PhD. So if you're struggling to finish, as I was, you don't have to focus solely on doing that, right? You can still cultivate other areas of your life like I was by blogging. I didn't know it was going to turn into a career move, but it did. Um, like maybe a side hustle that you could be pursuing that's you know, expanding your network or, or expanding your skill set or just something you enjoy doing. Uh, pursue these other areas of your life um, as you're finishing the PhD. And I think um, it'll all just help you in exploring what careers you want in the future and deciding what kind of job you want to have or design.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, I think that's that's really good advice. Now, again, thinking of these people, not that, that are thinking of, of uh, possibly dropping out, but that are finishing and that know that they're going to transition and that they're going to go into either industry or you know, to a new universe that they don't know. They, they're probably afraid. Uh, they're probably hesitant. Uh, did you deal with, with this type of emotion just after you finished?
1: Yes. So the specific circumstances around me finishing my PhD at the time that I did were um, that my advisor actually decided to leave Duke and move to another university um, in my sixth year. So I think the, the, the rationale around that was, you're pretty close to finishing anyway, Just uh, let's get you wrapped up and out the door, right? And so he actually ended up graduating, I think six or seven people in the same summer, right? Right before he left. So basically two years of students that he had accepted. So what I found a little bit unfortunate about that situation was that I had this like hurry up and finish moment. So it really like finishing my dissertation, getting to the defense really consumed. I mean, I was working... 50% Fifty percent more hours than I had been in the years, you know, prior to that. Like it was a very intense, you know, finish, and it really didn't leave me a lot of time uh, for that self reflection that we've been talking about. So I had I had been doing that work in the in the couple years prior to that point, and so this hurry up and finish period when I was putting in incredible hours in the lab and incredible hours writing at the same time, I don't think it left me a lot of room for emotions like fear. <laughs> it was just. I have all my energy is going into finishing at that moment. So, at the point when I finished my defense, you know, my we're packing up the lab, everybody's heading out, um I'm left with oh, like I don't have a job. Like I I had I mean, of course if I had needed to find a position, I'm sure I would have during that time, but again, like my husband had a position, we and because we'd been working on our finances, we weren't strapped you know we were going to be okay for a little while while I figured out what I wanted to do so kind of I think I was more like excited uh going into that next period you know okay I'm done with the degree it's it's the chapter is closed what do I want to do next and that's I I started like side hustling and again I did this fellowship that I mentioned I sort of and I was applying for other jobs like I was looking around at other things I might do um but I think a big big component here which again comes back to my you know professional work now is that we were very financially secure. Um, not just from my husband's... My husband had a postdoc at that point. So it's not like he's being paid you know, amazingly, but it was enough for both of us to live on in, in that area, which didn't have a high cost of living. And we had savings and we had investments and we had no debt and all that kind of stuff from the work we'd done in graduate school. So I think a lot of the fear um, surrounding this transition point can come from financial insecurity. And so to me, this is kind of a, a bit of... Yes, that could very well be the case um, when you're in transition that you are financially insecure. So if, if at all possible in the years leading up to that point, work on your finances, build up your savings so that you can have some kind of transition fund so that you can go a few months maybe without having a primary paycheck while you're applying for jobs and exploring and you don't feel that kind of pressure at least. So at least I had removed the financial pressure, you know, component from that and so I was really feeling more um excited and free and you know exploring what was next.
0: Well, that that's that's uh that's interesting and it's making me think of of uh, another aspect uh which is coming out of the PhD, I myself wasn't aware of how much my time was worth. What could I ask for as a salary? And uh, I wonder whether the people that you you know that you cross paths with and that uh, that come to you for 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 this type of uh, information and for this type of help, uh, you know, what's a way to feel more secure about your value once you go to the job market from uh, from finishing a PhD?
1: Yeah, I think the best combat um, to that is is research. Um, research into what other people are being paid in the kinds of positions that you want, the companies that you're looking towards. I mean, I think what you're saying is incredibly common among people coming out of graduate school. It's actually one of the, the most harmful money mindsets that we... Are sort of cultured into during graduate school is not valuing our time monetarily. There's one, I mean, you're not being paid very much, and two, you're expected to do all kinds of things that are outside of your job description on a totally volunteer basis. Um, and this is just just the culture, right? So, I think a lot of people, virtually everyone, come out comes out with that um, kinds of issues, you know, in their own mind about devaluing their own work. And so, I think um, if you do decide to leave academia. Um, Ultimately, you'll be pleasantly surprised by how highly other people value your PhD when not everyone around you has a PhD. Because in academia, yeah, pretty much everyone around you has a PhD, and it's a, you don't feel that it's that special or anything. But if you go outside of academia, it is special and it is a point of differentiation. Um, so I, yeah, I think the way to combat that is just really um, researching, like you know, using Glassdoor and all these other places where people can report their salaries. Um, researching, you know, what you're worth and also doing informational interviewing with people who are a few years out, like ahead of you in your program, for example. Um, So I'll tell a story from my husband. So he works in industry now. Um, He's at a synthetic biology company and he's a scientist there. And so when he was, you know, finishing his like postdoc and looking to move into industry, he conducted several informational interviews with, um, you know, graduate students who had gone before him in his program who had moved on to similar types of positions um, in different cities around the country. And, you know, of course he got a lot of, you know, advice from them and so forth. But one of the questions is like, what salary should I be looking at? You might not want to ask people what they make. But you might want to ask them, what salary do you think I should be looking for, right? Because they know, you know, about their starting salaries and so forth. So... You know, it's good to look at the internet for <laughs> this kind of information, but I think nothing really replaces um, individual human contact with people who are similar to you, like who came out of the same program, who are looking for the same types of jobs. So do that research for sure, and start getting those numbers in your head as your, you know, reference point or anchor point instead of whatever you were making as a graduate student or as a postdoc, because you should be making multiple times that amount if you're going into, for instance, an industry position in STEM.
0: Yeah, that that makes total sense, and uh, this actually segues into my next question. And because okay, people, you're telling them this; they're talking to people, and they have these numbers, but they may not be aware of their or of where this value comes from. And where I'm getting to is the the transferable skills. Uh, you already said that uh, that coming from a PhD, you have a lot of uh, transferable skills. That, that are valued by potential employers uh, out there. Um, which ones in your experience have been most valued by your peers or by employers that you had?
1: Hmm. Well, I think I'll rely a little bit on my husband's experience again, because I have such a, such a different uh, career, but these, this applies for me too. Um, I think one of the differentiation factors for him in terms of the workplace that he's in, where a lot of people have PhDs, not everyone, but a lot of people do um, is this, Uh, ability to think deeply and critically about um, information, about theories that are coming to you and to analyze them and to turn that around and create actual, you know, actionable recommendations or to direct the path of a project, for example. So um, it's not just about generating data, right? A lot of people can do that. A lot of people can read. Not everyone can think deeply and critically and synthesize and sit with that and apply the years that they've you know spent developing that skill skill to that problem. Um, and so I think that's a really... That's a skill that every PhD, no matter what your discipline has come to, right? By the end of your degree, you have a lot of skills in that area. I think that's very valuable. Um, because thinking deeply and critically is not an easy thing to do if you've never been trained and honed and practiced in that area before. Um, So it's something that does take time to develop and a PhD affords you that time to do that. Um, I think for me... The transferable skill that I developed most during my PhD, um, I think, well, there was a lot of writing involved with that, as I was saying earlier, the skill of writing, um, the skill of speaking and presenting, which again, is something that I do very often in my work um, that was continued to be developed during my PhD through giving you know, research presentations and so forth. Uh, but again, as I said earlier, I think my real key um, in my work is simply that I have the degree And that opens doors for me that other types of certifications or degrees would not, um, in my intense, you know, um, affinity with the PhD population. So there are um, many of us (laughs) who are outside of academia now, who are self-employed PhDs. This is again how I got involved with the Beyond the Professoriate community because there's a subgroup there called self-employed PhD. So there are many of us who apply the skills um, that we learn during our PhDs to help the people coming up behind us by few years, right? So there's people who are focusing on career exploration as you are and career development, Um, people who are focusing on um, helping, you know, with people with their CVs and um, even writing, you know, academic papers or your dissertation, there's coaches who do that. So a lot of people like me, um, there are many of us, again, use the skills that we developed during the PhD to help shepherd other people through the same period of life and to do it better than we did, you know, the first time around.
0: Yeah, that's that's very cool. Uh, I'm I'm definitely gonna look into uh, into that community because it sounds like it's vibrant and uh, and very very interesting, and and I'm all about giving back and 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 supporting people who are now going through those uh, th- those uh, trials, let's say. <laughs>
1: Naturally. Yeah. I mean, I think this podcast is is great work in that area. And I mean, I already told you I love the medium of, of podcasts. So, of course, I, I love that you chose that for it. But I do think we, we're in continual need for more people who are able to turn around, as you just said, and help people coming behind them, especially because all of us are coming from different disciplines and different experiences. And, you know, for example, beyond the professoriate, there's a very heavy... Um, uh, Component from you know both both the people running that have history PhDs right so there's a lot of this like humanities and and social sciences kind of people in that sort of community and you know on there are plenty of disciplines aside from that and we just need a lot more voices across the board um, assisting with this kind of work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I, my PhD was in cell biology, so my network is is very STEM. You know, it's it's very uh, people in science or biomedical engineering like you. Uh, and I haven't uh, yeah I haven't been able yet to. Uh, uh, to to find a guest more in the humanities, but I will.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, they're out there. Um, it's actually really interesting that you mentioned, you know, cell biology because I did this, actually, this is a little bit of a, another piece of advice or something for someone ending graduate school. One of the resources that I um, uh, utilized towards the end of my PhD was, I can't remember the name of the program now, but it was like this intensive, um, Sort of a professional development experience over the course of, I want to say a semester. So it was relatively long term. And we were, you know, exploring different careers and skills and so forth and placed into groups together. The groups would complete a project together. So it was almost like, you know, a non research based work kind of experience um, that you can, you know, add to your resume is like, I did this thing and I worked on a project and we had a deliverable and and blah, blah, blah. So it was a little bit supposed to mimic what you might find in other kinds of work environments. But my point is that uh, the theme that we were working on with this project was around um, how to do what we're talking about, you know, get a job outside of academia, what skills to develop, what you can do and so forth. And the the theme that my group chose was um, having work experiences or volunteer experiences that were outside of academia while you're still in graduate school, um, whether that's like a side hustle or like an internship or anything in that realm. Um, and I remember that one of the people in my... So I was in BME, in engineering. Two of my the people in my group were in the biological sciences, and then one person was in the humanities. And the people in the biological sciences were telling me how much like hostility they were facing from their departments and their advisors around the idea of doing anything other than bench research during their PhD about the audacity of spending any of your time doing anything else aside from biology and i don't know how pervasive that is but among the stem fields i'm thinking that you know the biological sciences are ones that are most closely attached to the idea of pursuing that tenure track career of staying in research compared to say for example engineering
0: it's often frowned upon uh, i've actually had uh, another uh, another guest say exactly that and again she was uh she was very very much into her her career and postdoc etc but she had other interests she she was um Taking part of this group, who would invite people who would talk about their careers, and some of them would be in or out of academia, and and she said that she had pushback. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely frowned upon. There's uh, crazy hours in the in the domain. Uh, often, you know, people working with uh, animal models uh, they need to be there on the weekends because there are uh, there are uh, mice that are being born at this day at this hour. And, you know, it's on Saturday or it's on Sunday or it's just before Christmas. And there can be a lot of pressure uh, in, in, in this type of, of project for sure. And it can be hard psychologically and, uh, and people need to, to manage that in a way to keep their mental health uh, in check. Because it, it can it can do many things and one of the, the the worst things that it does, it can just cut them off from from community and from the from the real world. And and I would say that's a big no no. You need to stay connected uh and um and, and have community outside of your of your benchmates, uh outside of your of your institution where you're doing your research. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. <laughs>
1: Like you were just saying, I mean, it's so important then that you have this voice and that people who are in, you know, similar fields to you can look to you and the advice that, you know, you're giving because like in my space in personal finance, um, graduate students or PhDs might read some advice from someone and think that doesn't apply to me because I'm different because I'm a graduate student or I'm a postdoc or whatever it is, Um, when they hear the same advice from me coming from their community, suddenly they can can hear it a little bit better. And so like for you, you know, people might be hearing career advice from a PhD who went through a different discipline and they might be saying, oh, you know, take some time away from the bench and explore these things. And they say, no, in my field, you can't do that. But from you, they hear it and they think, oh, he knows what I'm going through. He's still saying that. I guess I should listen to it, yeah, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, Emily, the, the next thing I wanted to touch upon uh, has to do with with community, like we were talking about just now, and it has to do with networking. Uh, it seems to me, from from uh, what you've described so far, that you're still very much in touch uh, with the academic community from different angles. You know, because people come to you to learn specific. Skills about about uh, their finance, etc. But uh, the question that I that I'd like to ask you is: um, Did you keep in contact with people from the from grad school, uh, be it professors or colleagues, or is pre uh, pre graduation and post graduation are they two like airtight compartments?
1: Yeah, very, very good question. Because as you said, I do have a lot of contact with um, academia now, the academic space, but the types of people who I'm in contact with are totally different from the types of people who I was in contact with um, when I was still you know, in research. So now I talk with a lot of um, administrators and staff members at universities who are focused on the personal and professional development of graduate students and postdocs. Um, and I'm not talking with professors. I mean, they ha- may have a faculty appointment as well, but I'm not talking with them in that capacity um, of their academic work. And so I would not say that the network that I, you know, was starting to develop during graduate school has translated to the work that I do afterwards. It's more about, again, having that degree. They they might open my emails or listen to me because, you know, I have that degree. Um, but the people themselves are, are very different. However, I have definitely um, relied on the, um, the connections that I had with my peer group, right, who have moved out of graduate school largely at the same time that I have. Some of them have taken faculty positions, of course, but many of them are in other areas now, or maybe they did post stocks and they left after that um so in terms of like my my friends and my acquaintances and my colleagues uh, at my peer level um i have at different points during um my you know business relied on them to hey would you consider recommending me you know as a speaker or what have you to your institution that you're at now and many of them have graciously you know um extended that for me Um, and it has helped me you know further my own network um, by, again, using their connections, right? So this is what networking is, right? You have a lot of these loose connections uh, that can do something for you, Make maybe make other loose connections. Ultimately, it might lead to work or it might not. Um, so I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm relying more on my peer network rather than, um, you know, people who are more established faculty members, for example. Um, but it's been a, a wonderful, you know, gift that they've given me to do that. and And it's really... I just... I just think it's a great idea to cultivate those relationships with your peers, not just people ahead of you, right, who think that, who you think might be able to help you move to your next position, but as your peers are also uh, advancing in their own careers, you know, to pull each other up. And my peers, of course, also had a more recent and more keen appreciation for what I do in terms of personal finance work than maybe people who were some decades removed from their own experiences in graduate school um, and not as, you know, a, attuned to the struggles of,
0: of graduate students of today. Mm-hmm. And uh, how would you say uh, someone who's thinking of transitioning, what would a good strategy be to start building a network that that looks a little bit like what they want to do afterwards? So, um, you know, going on LinkedIn and and looking for people doing what they want to do? Do, You know, do you have any advice on that aspect of networking?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, LinkedIn is an amazing tool. um, Absolutely. But I think I'm going to go back to my advice of doing informational interviews um, because making, I mean, making a connection on LinkedIn, like if the other person accepts it or whatever, that's like something, but you'll be like a hundred times more effective if you actually speak with that person um, live, if they agree to give you an informational interview. And again, you're not asking for anything from them aside from 15 or 30 minutes of their time. Um, But it's just, I mean, when you approach people, it really helps to approach them with flattery. Um, Oh, it seems like you're you have, it's such a fascinating career field and you've been so successful and you know I, I would love to ask you a few pointed questions don't say pick your brain I'd love to ask you a few pointed questions XYZ if you'll if you'll grant me a phone call or whatever um, I actually during the the fellowship I did for a semester um, after I finished my PhD. We were required by the fellowship to do a certain degree of informational interviewing around career exploration. And so I got a lot more versed at just reaching out to people who I had absolutely no connection with whatsoever, but were doing something cool um, and saying, hey, this is who I am. Um, this is what I'm looking at. And would you please, you know, hop on the phone with me for 30 minutes. And I don't think I ever got a no answer. I mean, everybody said yes, um, which was fantastic. So, and again, making those personal connections, that's not only going to give you some information, right? The informational interviewing aspect of it, but that person's going to remember you um, and what you're up to and you know what your skill sets are. And they're going to you know potentially down the road if they see a job or whatever they may be interested they may reach back out to you because they're going to actually remember who you are if you have a 15 or 30 minute conversation with them versus just you're another one of you know hundreds or thousands of of connections on linkedin and i know for me personally like i if I get an email from someone who says, "Oh, personal finance, I love it, so cool, love what you do," I always hop on the phone with that person. If they, especially if they're like, "Oh, you're you're so successful," I think if they butter me up a little bit, of course I'll get on the phone with them um, and impart any kind of wisdom I possibly can um, because I don't, you know, want people to struggle <laughs> if they are making the kinds of transitions you know that I did in the way that I did. I've learned some things and I can help them, you know, along the way a little bit, and I'm always happy to do that.
0: Excellent. Again, very, very good advice. Uh, and uh, if it's someone in your city, you can even invite them, invite them for coffee or something. But even if it's only a call, I think it's going to be a, a great plus for you. Uh, you're going to establish a rapport with the person. You're going to get much more information then, if you're just searching online, definitely uh, information. There's also
1: plenty of stuff that people don't want to put in writing about their jobs, right? They're not going to say it in an email. They're not going to splash it on their LinkedIn profile that there are some downsides to what they're doing. But if you talk with them and you're not recording them, they'll be a lot more candid with you.
0: I can't, uh, I can't agree more with you on that. And uh, I wish I had, uh, I had done some of that, uh, you know, because uh, I feel that. Um, often it depends on the domains, but people can be a bit introverted, uh, in the, in the PhD community. And I think it's worth it going beyond that, that timidity and, uh, and breaking that ice because you're going to gain so much.
1: I absolutely, um, identify with that completely. It may not be coming across during this interview, but I am an introvert and I am actually a very naturally shy person. Um, and so it has, you know, I do have to push myself out of my comfort zone c- continually to make these kind of connections, but um, it's, it's absolutely so worthwhile. Mm.
0: Uh, yeah, I've been there and I've done that too. <laughs> um, so the next set of questions that I have, have to do with uh, mentors uh, and uh, not everyone uh, during the grad studies or even after not everyone has uh, had mentors that, that have helped them uh Uh, you know, move towards their goals in life. Did you, uh, throughout all this path until today, have people that you can consider that were mentors for you?
1: Absolutely. I've already mentioned my PhD advisor who was not necessarily helping me along this personal finance path, but just generally supportive of me as a person and a professional. Um, I had a person who I didn't think of at first as a mentor, but who eventually became one uh, through some volunteer work. I started volunteering in the last couple years of graduate school with the Personal Finance at Duke um, initiative. And so the person running that initiative ultimately has become a mentor for me as I've moved into the the personal finance space professionally. She... uh, is not an academic. She was working in the financial aid office. She has a, a CPA, and uh, yeah, so just her totally different perspective on things was really, really valuable to me. She gave me a lot of support um, at the beginning of this like journey, um, talking with me about you know just talking through my ideas and um, recommending me to others and so forth. So I didn't realize it was a mentor at first, um, but she turned into one. And then I mean, I'm mentioning it again, but Jen Polk at Beyond the Professoriate has. Definitely been a mentor to me um, in my in my self employment um, journey because she has been self employed for several years longer than I have, so it already blazed a lot of trails in that area. And as so, she is. Sort of originally, by profession, a career coach, um, then turning into many, many more things. but her natural her coaching skills that she developed as a career coach have also translated to sort of in a, in a sense business coaching, which is how I've benefited from my relationship with her, as well as she's very generous with her network. Right. So um, making these kinds of connections again, it just it helps in so many different, you know, multifaceted ways. So those are three, um, you know, mentors just top of mind that um, have been really impactful for me. And, and again, I didn't necessarily think of the latter two as mentors when we began our relationship, but they've um, definitely turned into them.
0: That's awesome. And what would you say uh, if you can distill all of that, you know, help and of that knowledge that you that you got from them uh, into uh, into one important lesson or one or two important lessons, what would that be? Uh, you know, what did you learn that is most important for you uh, every day in your in your career from, from your mentors?
1: Yeah, I can definitely credit um, Jen Polk with something. I think she said this like the very first time I spoke with her and many times since then. Um, she is just a big proponent of trying things. Just try stuff. See what sticks. If you fall on your face that's okay. Like, you know, nothing um, really was harmed if you just like fail in some venture that you um, attempted. So she's much more like, I'm the type of person where I have to make everything perfect before I push it out into the world or before I um, offer it to my audience or before I put out there that I'm available for this type of work, whatever. I'm very cautious about doing that. And it does not serve that. attitude does not serve me well as an entrepreneur. And so that's something I've had to kind of actively work against. And Jen, has served as a wonderful model for me. And I do think this is very applicable beyond just the entrepreneurial space of like, don't, don't play it so safe, right? Like if you fail at something publicly, one, probably no one's going to notice because if you failed at something, probably no one is paying attention in the first place. So um, whatever, it's not even like that public of a failure. But, um, you know, if you have like, you try five things and four of them are failures, but one of them is a success, then you know, go in that direction and hone that. Um, but just just trying things and seeing what's worked instead of what my natural inclination is, is to like huddle to myself and plan and plan and think about it and like take a year before I take like the first actual tangible step. You know, Jen would just say, Oh, you have the idea? No, go ahead and, and try it. Go ahead, why not?
0: Yeah that's uh that's interesting it's uh so risk aversion as a uh deterrent to the entrepreneurial adventure let's say so you need to be comfortable with some amount of risk to be able to develop interesting and 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 cool projects
1: yeah but i think the risk that i'm specifically talking about here is just the risk of looking <laughs> silly right it's not even like actual risk like i've put money on the line or invested a bunch of resources or whatever it's just Oh, what if that idea fails? And that keeps me like paralyzed for a long time, or it has in the past. So I'm I'm sort of actually actively working against this. But I think, you know, you can apply this to the kinds of things we've been talking about, like informational interviewing. Again, what's the harm if you just reach out to someone and ask for some of their time? What are they going to say? No? Well, that's where you were anyway. Like, you weren't talking with them anyway. So why not just, you know, put that bit out there and see what happens. Yeah,
0: I I see what you're saying. And, and especially for introvert people, this, uh, this can really be, uh, this really can stop you from, from, uh, from just reaching out to other people just out of timidity and, Oh, I'm going to look dumb or or out of place. Uh, And um, no, like you say, you're just losing a great opportunity if you're not going out there and 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 making those those contacts. Interesting. And um, I guess now, uh, and I'm I'm taking a leap here, you probably have a, a mentor role towards other people ever since you started this uh, this uh, project of yours. In a sense, yes. And how how is that? Uh, how does that feel? And um, did some of the style of mentorship that I guess you do have, did it come from your mentors you had before? And, uh, you know, are you passing on kind of the heritage towards a new generation of mentees?
1: Yeah, I think so. So um, within, as I mentioned, this self-employed PhD group, that's under the umbrella of Beyond the Professoriate. um, I was sort of a a founding member of that group, right? Like I joined during its beta period, and so I'm one of the more longstanding members at this point. So there's Jen, of course, who started it, and then there's a few of us who have been around for a super, super long time and have been, you know, multiple years into our entrepreneurial journey right now. And so certainly within the context of that community, I can now, you know, turn around and impart some of the, you know, wisdom and and um, the encouragement and so forth that I think that other people um, need who are at an earlier stage. And what that helps me do is with any kind of teaching, right? You reinforce whatever you're teaching within yourself. So when I tell someone else to, as we were talking about earlier, value your own work and stay firm on your price and raise your rates and the kinds of things we talk about in this group, um, I'm telling myself that too. Like, I need to raise my rates. I need to stay firm in my prices. Um, So it just reinforces the same stuff in you when when you teach it, right? Um, So in that capacity, um, I, I do think I'm part of a mentor in a group sense, right? I'm not individually you know, working with anyone the way that Jen does. Um, within my own realm of personal finance, um, absolutely, there are some people who I have more long-standing uh, relationships with that we correspond from time to time. Um, I'm encouraging to them. Part of what I offer in my business is coaching around money. And so explicitly in those relationships, I don't know if we we would call it more of a a coaching relationship rather than a mentoring relationship, because there is, I mean, they pay me, right, to be in this, to be doing this for them. But absolutely, I mean, I'm helping them along. Um, One of the skills that I learned from Jen that I'm now turning around and using is a lot of listening. Um, Because money stuff is not really about numbers, Um, it's about emotions around money and thoughts and fears around money. And so one of those skills is definitely listening to people and reflecting back to them, okay, I hear you saying this and that's why you've made X, Y, Z decisions is that still the route you want to go? Like, let's examine your motivations for doing that and, and how might you want to change you know, the ultimate behavior. Uh, so a lot of listening and talking around that. So of course, I have plenty of knowledge that I want to give to people. But as we were kind of talking about earlier, you don't necessarily hear or listen to everything that's said to you. It has to be said in the right uh, way and by the right person. Um, and so that's something that I'm, a skill that I'm continually developing, right? Within those coaching relationships.
0: Excellent. And well, in the spirit of, again, sharing to uh, the newer or the younger generations of PhDs that are coming out, I'm getting to my last question. And in this, this last question, um, I'd just like you to imagine that you're in front of an audience full of young finalists or young graduates. Uh, you know, think of yourself when you were finishing and, you know, they're struggling through their fears, their worries, and they could be financial or not, you know, and they're thinking of how am I going to find my place in the job market? Am I going to be employable? Am I over-educated? Uh, uh, and you know, this this can be very challenging uh, for a lot of people out there. And what I'd like you to do is to, uh, to give them two or three basic strategies or principles that they could follow starting today to put in place a realistic and attainable transition project into their professional life. Actually, because you're a specialist in that, that domain, maybe even... How can they do that in their financial life?
1: Absolutely. First of all, almost everyone I would say has these kinds of feelings coming up on the end of a PhD. Um, I said earlier that I was almost too rushed (laughs) to have those kinds of feelings, but uh, I, I know that they would be there as well if I had time to reflect on them. So, one, you're absolutely not alone, and this is something you should be talking with not only your peers about, and not just in like a griping way, but a real, honest, open way with your peers and i think you can find a lot of solace in that community with one another but in addition to Talking with one another around these things, talk with people who have gone before you, right? Because they have that outside perspective that you desperately need at this point. You know, reach out to the people who have gone before you in your program, as we talked about earlier. Reach out to um, people you just think are interesting (laughs) who maybe will give you some of their time to help explore that. Um, So, the networking component um, is something you can do to combat those feelings as well as make actual tangible you know, steps towards achieving the career that you want post-PhD. The second piece of advice, which is partially financial and partially not, um, is to start doing actual work outside of your role as a graduate student or postdoc. Um, and by work, I don't necessarily mean paid work, although that is preferable. It could be volunteer work. But anything, just to gain any kind of experiences outside of your primary one as you know a researcher, um, as a student, um, as a trainee, because working, if it's a side hustle or a volunteer position or an internship or whatever it is, gives you... Again, those additional perspectives um, that you might be seeking at this time, and you know, is usually something you can put on your CV because a lot of the the fear I think at this stage is around um, I don't have any work experience, I don't have any recent work experience. All employers are looking for the PhD plus two years of work experience as an entry-level position. Well, of course, we know that's negotiable, right? Uh, but something you can do is, well, at the same time you're finishing your PhD, you can start that work experience clock, even on a part-time basis, just by reaching out and having some of these other um, experiences. Internships, if they are a thing in your field, are a great thing to do. Not everyone has the opportunity to do internships. Um, but I have interviewed um, many people through my podcast and through my website who have had these kinds of side hustles or side experiences during graduate school or during their postdocs that have directly set them up for what they're doing after their PhD, not only in you know exploring okay, what do I want to do? I'll try this work as we were talking earlier. I'm just going to try it. I'm just going to do it for a couple months, see if I like it. Um, Maybe, you know, on a freelance basis or something. Um, Not only exploring the careers, but then continuing to develop the networks and the skill sets that will help you find the actual position that you want after the PhD. And so that, can help you financially, right? If it's actually paid work to have that side income stream coming in. Um, but I think the more important point is the career development and the network development that can come along uh, with that. And money can make it the sort of, you know, you think it's kind of worth your time to be doing it. It can help you with a transition fund. Um, so I think it's really worthwhile in that way. But the, but the bigger impact is really the career transition. So again, as we were talking about earlier, it's about kind of getting out of your shell and thinking about yourself as more than just a researcher and that you have value to bring to the world in other ways as well
0: mm-hmm. and i 'm thinking about my you know my field of study where where it would have been difficult to have a, a side hustle like you 're saying uh, and thinking of your example uh, I imagine you know for someone who who's listening to this and who's saying i can't i can't have a a, a side hustle i I have to be at lab you know from dawn to dusk and on on weekends. Uh, I feel that something like blogging or, you know, contributing to some kind of publication uh, in the domain that interests you, but that that does not require X hours per day of presence, maybe that that's an avenue?
1: Well, yeah, I mean... The first way I would challenge you is maybe you need to think about a side hustle a little bit differently because um, I totally agree that it is very difficult for any kind of graduate student to show up at a certain place at a certain time for a certain number of hours per week or whatever. Um, like the way a traditional internship might be done, even a part-time internship. Yeah, you might need to go into an office for you know four hours a week or something like that on a weekday. Right? It's very difficult to do that kind of thing. But as you were just saying, if you have the time to blog, if you have the time to write about something, you have the time to work freelance. You can get jobs on Upwork. Like there are ways that you can um, like, okay, I'll give you a concrete example. So something that a lot of my peers in graduate school um, did was um, scientific writing editing uh, for like, and I've done this myself too, as a side hustle, uh, as a contractor for a larger company. So like the company finds the jobs for you, they send them to you, you do the editing, you send it back, you get paid. It's a strictly contractor relationship. It's strictly done on your own time. You regulate the workload. So on my podcast in the first season, um, I interview um, someone, her name's Dr. Jenny Rinker, who did that specific side hustle during graduate school. One, she paid off her student loans from undergrad during her her PhD. Um, So it was an amazing lucrative side hustle that she did on top of her you know, regular job. By the way, she finished her PhD in four and a half years, so it didn't slow her down at all. Um, so, and and it set herself up again for the post PhD like career. So, please think about side hustles um, more broadly. Now, of course, I mean, if if it's exhausting to you to think about working whatever it is sixty plus hours a week, um, plus oh my gosh, I have to side hustle on top of that. If that's exhausting to you, um, that may not be the right path. But I think for many people, they relish pivoting and doing something with their skill set that is more immediately gratifying than research, right? So like when I, I, I don't do this anymore, but when I would edit a, a paper, it takes me like a journal article, it takes me like an hour or less. And at the end of it, I can say, I did that. I helped someone, I earned some money, it's done. Like it's just something so concrete that I can say, yep, I accomplished that today, which is very different from research where you can go days and weeks and months without feeling like you've accomplished anything. Um, So please think about the side hustle a little bit more broadly, but specifically on science communication, um, I love that idea. So even if you are not making money, but you have the time to blog, um, again, just to kind of be putting yourself out there as I'm an expert in this area, right? If you have a PhD, you're an expert in some area. So of course, start blogging about your field of research. You may not be able to blog about your own research, but maybe other people's published work. Um, That's a wonderful idea. And I have another resource to point you to, which is the Grad Blogger Community. So there's a whole community around people who blog about, usually science. I mean, I'm part of the community. I don't blog about science, but I am a blogger. So I'm part of that grad blogger community. It's run by uh, Dr. Chris Cloney, and he has a podcast as well. He's been on my show. I've been on his shows. He's a close colleague of mine, and we met through self-employed PhD. But he's doing exactly this, right? He's helping shepherd people who are still in academia through blogging and through writing or podcasting or whatever medium it is to put themselves out there as a professional in their own space and gain some attention from people outside their own university and outside their own corner of academia. And that, again, can help with career transitions or becoming self-employed if that's what you decide to do. That's what Chris did. So yes, definitely think a little bit more broadly and flexibly about what it means to have a side hustle or a side income or a side pursuit, a volunteer side pursuit. Um, Because unless you're just falling down on your face at the end of every day, (laughs) exhausted, which, hey, that's that's where I was at the end of my PhD, totally, totally exhausted, no time for anything else. Unless you're in that stage, I do think you uh, may be able to find some of these experiences that'll be valuable for you in that transition.
0: So, uh, from what you just said, I would say then to start doing those types of things at the outset of your of your of your grad studies, because then they'll be part of your schedule, and by the end, they'll still be part of it, and you'll still be able to do it. Uh, versus, if you decide to start a side hustle by your last year, you're just not not going to be able for sure. Super yeah, interesting. I mean,
1: if, if you allow me to hypothetically speak to people who are earlier on in their PhD careers, absolutely, that is the time to do that. I, d- I mean, if, if it's not going to put your funding in jeopardy, I mean, I think everyone should have a side hustle, basically. I mean, international students, yes, we know that, at least in the US, I'm speaking, in the US international students are, are barred from outside work. Now, you can do volunteer stuff, but you wouldn't be able to have outside work. But in terms of domestic students, unless it's directly going to put your funding at risk, I do think you should be side hustling um, because it's a great way to do more career exploration and have that extra income. So you can set up, set yourself up with that financial stability, you know, to do this exploration as you need to, maybe on a full-time basis after you finish your PhD. Yes, naturally build this stuff in all of it from the beginning of your PhD. It is very difficult to pick it up at the end, although still valuable if possible. Um, but yeah, if you start it earlier on, it's it, that's more about setting expectations around yourself, like, okay, I will always be exploring career stuff and I will always be doing professional development and I will always be side hustling Uh, for yourself. That's an expectation you can set. And also for the people around you and your mentors, okay, well, yeah, I'm not going to be working 70 hour weeks. I'm going to be working 50 hour weeks so that I can have, you know, some things going on outside of, you know, uh, research.
0: Yeah. And then you'll be a well-rounded candidate whenever you're going to present yourself to a potential employer. Okay. You were motivated. You, not only were you doing your PhD, but also you did this, you published that you no, definitely, uh, follow, follow Emily's advice. Listeners out there do that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this was my last question and uh, I had a, I had a great time during this interview. I really, really, uh, liked, uh, talking, talking with you. I, I actually, uh, now I, I almost want to ask more stuff, but it'll, it'll be for another conversation probably. Uh, Thank you so much, Emily, for uh, for accepting my invitation and uh, and uh, for sharing with with the Papa PhD listeners.
1: Absolutely, David. It was such a pleasure for me to talk with you. Um, thank you for inviting me. And if I can just say, for anyone who wants to follow up with me, uh, my business is personal finance for PhDs. My website is PF forphds dot com and I have a podcast same name personal finance for PhDs so uh, please come find me if you <laughs> want some more um, knowledge and energy around this subject of uh, personal finance so thanks again for having me
0: my pleasure and uh, I will I will put the URL that you shared and your contacts and uh, if you allow me to your Twitter account in the show notes of your episode as well as the resources that uh, that you talked about which sounded very very interesting and potentially very, very useful to to our listeners.
1: Yes, all things I wish I had known about during graduate school. They may not have existed, actually, while I was in graduate school, but I'm glad they exist now. Uh, Yeah, if anyone wants to follow up with me on Twitter, it's at PFFORPHDS.
0: All right. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD Podcast. Head over to PapaPhd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.